0: First Kings chapter 11, but don't go there right away. Flip back to Deuteronomy 17. We won't do a full Bible study of this, but we need this reminder in order to understand this chapter. Um, so, Deuteronomy 17, let's go left in your Bibles. Last week we saw a number of areas where Solomon ignored the commands of God. And so we saw these seeds getting planted, of like There's things he did after his work with the temple in establishing Israel that weren't necessarily things that God had commanded him to do, and they seem to even be questionably in or outside of God's rules. So one of the questions that got asked afterwards in the conversation is, why didn't God do anything? Why is Solomon able to get away with these kind of things that were disobedient, but God doesn't seem to react to them? So this week we get the answer, oh, God does do something about it. And there is a reaction to it. It's just in the next chapter. So before we get started, I want to remind ourselves of what God had said about kings and the kings of Israel in particular and what they should do and what they should not do. So if you're in Deuteronomy 17, go down to verse 14. And I'm just going to read this section here and kind of jot for yourself or note for yourselves the different elements of what a king should and shouldn't do. For Israel, when you come to the land which the Lord your God is giving you, and possess it, and dwell in it, and say, "I will set a king over me," like all the nations that are around me, you shall surely set a king over you, whom the Lord your God chooses, one from among you, your brethren. You shall set as king over you. You may not set a foreigner over you who is not your brother. In other words, there should be an Israelite king over Israel. But he shall not multiply horses for himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses. For the Lord has said, you shall not return that way again. Neither shall he multiply wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he greatly multiply silver and gold for himself. And it also shall be when he sits on the throne of his kingdom that he shall write for himself a copy of this law in a book from the one before the priests and the Levites. So the king should transcribe by hand a copy of the Torah. And so they have that book with them. And it shall be with him, verse 19, and he shall read it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God and be careful to observe all the words of this law and these statutes. He's supposed to do devotions. Like the king of Israel is supposed to write his own copy of the Bible and then actually read it for the rest of his life. That his heart may not be lifted above his brethren, that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right hand or to the left, that he may prolong his days in this kingdom, he and his children in the midst of Israel. That's the command given generations before Solomon ever showed up. So here we are. David has fought to have land that's called Israeli territory. He has driven out non-Israelites from that land. Solomon becomes the first king to inherit that kingdom. He's not supposed to multiply horses, wives, or gold. Pride, lust, and greed the three great things that drop good men and women. Chapter 10, verse 14, specifically he had 666 talents of gold per year. was his income rate. In verse 28, he imported horses actually from Egypt, which is actually mentioned back in Deuteronomy. Like, don't go to Egypt to get your horses. Um, But he does that to multiply his horses and to build his armies. And then in verse 1... um, where we, we come into this chapter, it gets into the fact that he loved many foreign women and he brought in, he multiplied his wives. So do stay in the word, fear the Lord and live it, stay humble and true as a king and don't do those other three things. That's the command that Solomon had going into the kingship. So I can flip back to First Kings chapter 11 and we'll dig into the chapter knowing that's the context that those words should be on his hip every day as a king of Israel. So he should know what those words are and what they say, because he's written them out by hand. So Solomon then, with his self-written copy, should know these things are against the law of God. That's where chapter 10 started to get more and more like, what is this guy doing? And then chapter 10 shows the material sins. As we go into chapter 11, we get to the spiritual sins. So we'll, we'll, we'll see how he further ignores God's commands, and it continues to get worse from what we saw in chapter 10, to where he's... Flat out fallen off the cliff by the end of this chapter. Verse 1. King Solomon loved many foreign women. The word but shouldn't be there. It's not in the Hebrew. Uh, King Solomon loved many foreign women, as well as the daughter of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites. At least he's not racist. So he's gathered his harem from all over the world, from the nations of whom... The Lord had said to the children of Israel, you shall not intermarry with them, nor they with you. Surely they will turn away your hearts after other gods. Notice we're talking about the heart now. So it's something to do with how our hearts operate. Solomon clung to these in love. This particular issue then is highlighted by the author. It's both idol worship, as the hearts go astray after idols, and it's polygamy, both of which are not good things to be doing as a child of God. It's also very public. What he's doing is displayed to everybody. As the leader of the country, if he's doing these things, who's he to say that the people shouldn't be doing these things? And that's part of the problem of leadership. If you're in leadership, you should be a role model um, of the principles that you want your people to be following. So for all his wisdom, Solomon likes the ladies, and it gets him into some trouble. So 15 of those wives um, are inherited from his dad. So we get this principle, too, that the sins of the father become the sins of the son. Only the son's sins become far worse than the father's sins. That said, if you have 15 wives, what's another 985? Right? It's just, let's just keep adding them. The other piece is that Solomon clung to these in love. um, Verse 2. The word love there in the Hebrew is a human love for a human or an object. It's not a love between a God and a... Servant. So it's not the kind of agape love. And Greek actually has a much richer text for love. Greek has multiple words for love that distinguish which kinds. Uh, In the Hebrew, we don't. We kind of just have this as a human love principle. The problem with the love is that it's misplaced. So it's that his affections go into these places. So as much as he had wisdom and even intelligence that we saw in earlier chapters, he also has this thing called lust. And the, it seems like all the wisdom and intelligence in the world doesn't protect you from things that are against God's will. That becomes a problem. He's clinging to these things. Uh, if his one wife, Abishag, isn't enough for him, remember they searched the whole land for a, a person for David in his old age, and they made a real point that she didn't sleep with anyone, but she would have been inherited by Solomon when he took over the kingship. So if, if Abishag wasn't enough for Solomon why would a thousand wives ever satisfy somebody? And that's the problem with polygamy. If one person isn't enough for you, why would a billion people then suddenly be enough? So if there's no limit to the desire, there's no value in it either. It, it cheapens all of it. And that becomes part of the problem. Verse three, he starts to extend a good thing because love is a really good thing, but love unconstrained becomes something Satan can use to twist your heart. And that's kind of true of a lot of different things. There's nothing wrong with food, but gluttony becomes a sin because there's no constraint on the food. It's food without restraint. There's really nothing wrong with love and even a sexual relationship with a partner in marriage as God prescribed it. But if you overdose on it, it becomes a problem in your life, becomes an addiction. Same thing with money. There's nothing wrong with having money to pay the bills and being good with your resources, but when you fall in love with the money, it's a misdirected love that Satan can use to dominate your life and put you into a jail cell. So virtually all of these things that you can go beyond the discretion or boundaries of God, and then you start to cling to them. Verse 3, he had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, a thousand in total. And his wives turned his heart turned away his heart. He cared more for the ladies than he did for his king. And that becomes a problem for for King Solomon. It's not the the first of these problems, but he's definitely the worst that we've seen in the Bible so far. Um, pride, lust, and greed. And we've seen the pride. We've seen the power. And now we see the lust. God never shows that this is blessed. People will use this passage and say, "See, polygamy's okay." But there's nothing about this passage that says this is okay. In fact, it's making the point that's quite the opposite. This is against God's will. But we have characters in the Bible that do things that are against God's will. And we're supposed to discern that. So it turns away his heart. No kidding. That's exactly what Deuteronomy 17, 17 would say would happen. And this is the first step. It's not about his intellect. It's about his heart. God's yet to be proven wrong, so when he made that prophecy in Deuteronomy, he knew exactly what was going to happen here. That's that's God's power of seeing things coming from a long way away. Also, God made us and he knows how we operate. So when God gives us principles about how to live and how to think about these things, we should pay attention because he actually designed us. If you buy a new laundry machine, you read the manual to know how to work it. And the same thing's true with the Bible. Like if you are trying to live a life, you read the manual to know how to work it. Unless you're Zach and you just know how laundry machines work. (laughs) Most of us have to read some directions here and there. No matter how high or deep or beautiful the things are that the world offers, if it's beyond the constraints of what God has said, it's going to be damaging in our lives on any of those kinds of things. So these gifts and promises that Solomon has, all this blessing that he had, wasn't big enough to constrain his passions because God was not sufficient and he wanted more. So it ends in a in, in, in a bad way, verse four. For it was so when Solomon was old that his wives turned his hearts after other gods and his heart was not loyal to the Lord his God as was the heart of his father David. Now remember, David sinned a ton. It's not about sin. It's about what you love and what you pursue and what you follow. When I sin and I love my Lord, I say I'm sorry and I repent. If I sin and I love the sin more than God, I don't spend time apologizing for it. I don't know a lot of people that aren't Christians that apologize for things that they don't think are wrong. But when we love the Lord, we repent like David did. So over time, I think there's this principle of aging that over time we either turn into an old gem or we become dead wood. Because we do things and we either harden our hearts in those behaviors because we think we're right and we become dead wood, or we get refined through trials, through sanding, And we become a a, a multifaceted gem in the lives of other people. Light hits us, but it shines in a ton of different directions when it does. Light hits a piece of dead wood and it just dies. So dead wood then is, (laughs) for these two images, gems are made in the middle of pressure and endurance. That we go through life and we get better because we endure. Dead wood is created by the lack of water and roots and stability in the plant's life. And the same is true of us. We tend to set in over time. When little sins get explained away or ignored, even good-intentioned little sins, they become bigger things that have a projecting ripple effect in our lives, and they start to hurt the people around us. That's why we have to be responsive to each other sometimes. His father David, Solomon, is compared to an example who is absolutely not perfect. Solomon broke, David bent, but he never broke. He always contained and retained his love for the Lord. Verse 5 says, For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. Um, Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not fully follow the Lord, as did his father David. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh in the abomination of Moab, on the hill that is east of Jerusalem. That would be the Mount of Olives. And for Moloch, the abomination of the people of Ammon. And he did likewise for all his foreign wives who burned incense and sacrificed to their gods. With the nations that were listed earlier in the chapter, those were all um, uh, polytheistic nations. They would have all had a pantheon of gods. So we could theoretically be talking about hundreds of different gods getting temples and shrines throughout Israel based on just the wives' countries that were listed. Notice the progression. I, I think this is one of the great lessons from this passage. First, he turned away. Like, turning away from the Lord is just what we would just call, like, you know, I'm just going to take a couple weeks and do my own thing and whatever, and you just kind of turn to other things in life. It's not so bad, and it's not even a sin. It's just that it, it's the first step, because first he turns away in verse 4. Then in verse 4, he's not loyal then in verse 5, he went after, and, and then verse 5 says after again. And then in verse 6, then he did evil. See how it's kind of growing worse with each one? Verse 6, he did not follow. Then verse 7, he actually built a temple for. And then in verse 8, he did he did for others. Now he's starting to actually recruit and do things for other people that would lead them into sin. That's the progressive path of sin. First, it starts with passivity about things and compromise, And then the next thing you know, as you don't correct those things, they actually grow and become bad directions. So we have sin starting by turning away and ending in actually a progressive path towards breaking God's commandments willfully and intentionally. So we have pagan gods. You know when you see a list of pagan gods, you're going to get some geekdom from me. Um, I think it's good because when they wrote this, the readers would have known who Ashtaroth was. Praise the Lord, we don't even know who this is anymore. Like, the, the worship of Ashtarte is just not a popular religion anymore. And I think that's the the fact that many of those battles have been won by the Lord our God. So some of these older gods that we don't recognize, they're gone. Or are they? Dum-dum-bum. That's where the music could kick in right there. Are they gone? Really? Do we still worship Astarte? And I'm going to argue we kind of do. These gods are the same gods. They've been the same tricks. And they haven't really changed. Um... So Solomon's bringing these wives in. They worship other gods. Then he eventually starts building them temples so they can worship their gods their way. That's what you call permissiveness. Or a nation that says, we're going to allow this kind of behavior because we don't want to tell people no. And that's kind of what's going on. So the knowledge of God doesn't save Solomon from sin, but Solomon seems to be affected more by the sin than the other way around. And that's kind of why Christians have to guard their hearts. That's why we see that command throughout the Bible. We're supposed to protect and guard after what we love and what we adore. It's easily drawn away. So we see here that there are, verse 5, abominations, and verse 6, actual evils. Abominations and evils start with a lie. And I'm going to argue that each of these gods takes something that God has made that's wonderful and beautiful, and they twist it and they, they warp it to where it's not beautiful anymore at all. It becomes a human religion. So Ashtoreth, or in some ancient records, Ashtarte, is the goddess of fertility or sex. Actually take fer- fertility out of there, kind of. It's more about just the worship of sex. So that idea of having sex with whoever you want, whenever you want, the worship is primarily practiced by Sidonians, who are sailors. So think about when a sailor comes into port, what's one of the first things on their mind, Right? And that's why in port cities you'd often have temples of the, of Ashtoreth from the Sidonians, and they were essentially brothels. They were places that sailors could go and 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 have sex without responsibility, because they're going to get on a ship and go somewhere. They didn't want to have homes. They were sex cults, and they were built up that way. This is kind of R-rated tonight. Sorry about that. Um, later, Astaroth gets adapted by the Aramaics. Uh, she becomes the the goddess of love. The Greek framed this term Eros around it because this goddess would often be associated with a warrior goddess so she'd be pictured on top of a a chariot or on top of a horse and that image carries all the way through she was called the star or the evening star Um, later on images of ashtoreth would have a naked young lady riding on top of a horse which got guys really excited when they saw that outside the building so it was a way to draw people into this kind of behavior the writer distorts the word here a little bit, and instead of ashtarte says ashtoreth, making the word rhyme with the word shame. It's, it's like one of those little like commentary things they did. So they twist the word just a little bit to sound more like the word shame in the Hebrew. Ashtoreth then is the power of lust, and lust is powerful. Lust for a young man, I think, helps him make commitments to a young woman. Lust for a young woman helps her to accept a young man into her life as part of that relationship. It is what draws young people together, and it's an extremely powerful force. Science shows that it's actually wired into the enzymes um, that pump through our bodies at certain ages, that attraction to the opposite sex is something that's a gift. Some people have more of it, some have it less, but it is undeniably a powerful force in our life. So when you see an Ashtaroth pole, or when that's referenced in the Bible, They would have statues of a naked woman out in the woods and they would have parties around that statue of a certain kind. So the idea was free love. They'd be out in these woods or groves and they would have sex with whoever they want. And then you say, well, has that really disappeared? And you look around America today and around the world today, those groups of people are out there and it is absolutely what they worship. It's what they spend their weeks thinking about and what they look forward to on the weekends. The problem with that is when you have no restraint in that area of your life you've taken something that God's given to people that should powerfully draw them towards marriages and it turns it into something that's destructive because it turns sex into something cheap and not valuable and that's horrible that's a twisting of it that's just rotten so you have this wonderful God-given joy that we should have in our life that builds trust actually when we have intercourse with other people there's enzymes released in our brain that help us to trust that other person more it actually helps us to become one person. So when that gets taken out of the marriage context, it actually disseminates trust where you have people that have psychological disorders because they cannot attach to other people because they've had sex with too many partners. And the brain doesn't know how to respond to it. Or bad experiences after sex make it so they can't even have sex anymore. Or they can't get pleasure out of sex anymore. Because the experience that their brain associates is when I have this feeling, the next morning I'll have this feeling. So your brain starts to reject this activity here. It's the same function that makes us not eat the same food that we threw up a week before. So when that happens in something that God meant to be beautiful in people's lives, that's totally destructive. So here's the next thing. Then you get Milcom, which is another word for Moloch, which is also mentioned here. So Milcom's the competing God. Throughout the Bible, we'll see references to Milcom or Moloch. Verse 7 has Moloch as the word for the statue. Milcom's the word for the god, and usually in the Bible they simply reference the statue because from the Israelite perspective they're just tearing down the statue of Moloch or the Moloch statue. But Milcom and Moloch then kind of go together. Moloch's the god of prosperity, money, um, benefit, and if you're talking about your crops, it's the fertility of your crops. So where Ashtaroth deals with lust, Moloch deals with money or or wealth. Uh, Moloch worship was common across Africa all the way to Ammon. Uh, They would have Ugarit rituals, and the Ugarit rituals get kind of nasty. Again, we're R-rated tonight. If you want wealth or power, what you'd do is you'd give something of value to Moloch so he would give you something more valuable back. And this was the religious principle that they worked on. They would call it passing it through the fire. So that thing that was precious or valuable You'd give it up, and you'd put it into a statue of Moloch, and and there's tons of these dug up. They actually re-put one up by the Colosseum in Rome about a month ago, and people got really upset about it. Like, why are we putting up statues of Moloch? But archaeologically, they're all over the place. They would have a bull's head on the top and a human body on the bottom, and Moloch hands would be outstretched either straight out or to the side. They would be metal statues, which is why we find them in archaeology. So these metal statues would then be usually hollow core and they would act like an oven. You'd put wood inside the back and you'd fire this thing up and the metal would conduct the heat and they would turn into giant frying pans. So whatever you put through the fire, whatever you pass through the fire, would be burnt up in the hands of Moloch. So you'd literally put that thing in there. Here's the worst part about it. At the earliest levels of Melchom worship or Moloch worship, the outstretched hands were usually filled with children. So you'd take babies that you don't want and you'd put them through the fire for Moloch to have and they'd be burnt up. So children being a wonderful blessing from God are here treated like, in a. I think this is so twisted, they're treated like an inconvenience or a burden on the people that have them. So what God says is a blessing, the followers of Moloch would say, no, it's not a blessing at all. It's an economic burden on me that I can't afford right now. So they'd take that child and they'd put it in the hands of Moloch. But here's the thing. God says, Jeremiah 1.5, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. Psalm 127.3, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. It takes something that's a blessing and it twists it into something that we should see as a curse. So Ashtoreth and Molech go together in every society that we're in. Free sex goes with getting rid of children. Make sense? If you're going to have sex whenever you want, you're going to have children you don't want and you're not ready for and they're not being had within a marriage re- relationship, suddenly you've got a crisis for the young lady that's pregnant because she's got to decide between economic wealth and benefit for herself or the life of the child. This is a tragedy when this happens, but the tragedy starts with Ashtaroth worship, not with the Moloch worship. So if you want to hit it at its core, the trade of sex without responsibility comes Children, which are a responsibility, being born out of a situation where people are ready to take on the responsibility. It's a it's a crisis that's happened throughout human history when people fall away from the Lord God Almighty. They run into this situation. That unrestrained sexual freedom comes with unloved and unwanted babies. Then you look around and, wow, we don't have Moloch anymore. Moloch's been gone for centuries. We've successfully beat Moloch worship, or have we? Or is this something that still is destructive to a society in the same way that it was to Solomon? This is going to be a problem and a sin for Israel for centuries to come, and it starts right here. Ezekiel accuses all of Israel, for you took your sons and daughters whom you bore to me, and you sacrificed them. You slaughtered my children. It's a curse to the nation of Israel that God says he abhors this behavior. Our verses call it an aberration, an abomination, and evil itself. Let me just give you a stat. Since 1973 in the United States, we've killed 63 million babies. 63 million babies have been killed by our country. So before we get mad at Solomon, we got an increase in free sex and we have an increase in abortions. California just passed a law this week that does not allow authorities to check into an infant that dies up to three months after birth, which means... A parent can kill their child up to three months after birth with no threat of being sought out or or looked into by the police. It allows parents to kill their children or pass them through the fire. Verse 6, Solomon did evil. We don't even need to read into that. This is evil. And what Solomon's doing here by allowing it as a king, but not only that, participating in it later, Boy, when you got a thousand wives, maybe you don't want all those kids. So you give up something that you see is valuable, that has life in it. You give it to Moloch so that you can pray for more success. Did Solomon have a success? Yeah, he had a lot of money. And the confusion here is instead of seeing what God's blessed him with, he starts thinking Moloch blessed him with those things. It's terrifying how small of a shift this is in thinking and how it still fits. It doesn't say he served, but he did allow them to do it, and allowing people to do it was still evil. It is not getting the abortion that's necessarily the evil. It's allowing the abortions that's evil. So if you wanted to get into political discussions, you can, but at least you know that where I'm coming from is this definition right here that doing this sort of thing is not good. and We shouldn't be a part of it, but we should also be part of solving the problem. Right, So one of the issues with uh, um, sex outside of marriage within the church is almost identical to sex outside of marriage outside the church. So if the church is going to suddenly have a high ground on abortion, we should probably have a high ground on our sexual restraint in the same way. Or we're being hypocrites because we're allowing the worship of one and not allowing the worship of the other. Well, Solomon was at least not a hypocrite. He didn't do one without the other. Then you get Chemosh. Chemosh is just ugly. Chemosh is the destroyer, the fish god. We talked about him when we did Jonah, right? Chemosh is nasty because Chemosh isn't about convenience. Chemosh is just straight power. So where Ashtaroth is sex, Milcom or or Molech is greed, Chemosh is power, and Chemosh is directly an enemy of Yahweh. If you read the Mesha Steel, which is a Moabite archaeological find, Chemosh actually brags about how he defeated Yahweh and how he is dominant over Yahweh. And one of the ways that Chemosh would show dominance over people is Chemosh would take adult human sacrifices. Molech did babies. Chemak took the grown adult and you would kill people to sacrifice to them. They were baked in the heat, they were tortured, they were bled. Chemosh worship creates an entire cult of inventing new ways to torture people so that you don't just kill them, you kill them with as much pain as possible to show dominion over those people. Chemosh worship. So we just read over these things, but the people that wrote this assumed that you would know who Chemosh was because he was a persistent enemy of God's people. See, at least we don't worship Chemosh today. When powerful people use weaker people as a form of domination and abuse gets celebrated and humans are objectified and there's one rule for this group of people and another rule for these groups of people and you've started to segregate your society into those that make the rules and those that obey the rules, you're in the middle of Chemosh worship or Chemosh style worship. If you think you can destroy the life of another for the benefit of you, that's Chemosh worship. Do we see that around today? I think we see a lot of that today. In fact, that's one of the chief political issues we see today is the human beings are going right back into Ashtaroth worship, Moloch worship, and Chemosh worship. We've just changed the names. And Satan is perfectly okay with changing the names. As long as people are destroyed, as long as lives are ruined, as long as people can't get ahead, they can work their whole lives and never get on top of things, they're being dominated, they're being oppressed. God hates this sort of thing. That we should be angry at sin is a good thing. And I hope we are. I hope as God's people, we're angry at this stuff when we see it. But we don't hate the person. We hate the God they're serving. We don't destroy the people. We try to pull the people out of that worship and into the worship of a true and living God. But it's a twisted thing. Order, peace, organization, government, these are good things. God's ordained government. God's shown a peaceful way to live. He set up a civic code for the people of Israel. It's not a bad thing to have power. It's a bad thing to use that power in order to destroy other people's lives. It's a bad thing for a bank to take advantage of people to where they're ripping them off. It's a bad thing to mix the weights and scales in the marketplace that you're just trying to steal from people. It's a bad thing to set up a scam and try to rip people off and take their money. These are evil things. For God's people. For they do evil and abuse the power that they have. Jeremiah 23, 10. It's one of the things Israel gets accused of. They abuse power. Pride, lust, greed. Sex, wealth, and power. However you want to word it. They're not bad when they're given boundaries. In fact, God's law shows us how to exercise those things within the boundaries God sets up. They're evil when they become your God and you start to serve those things. Then we get to verse 9. So the Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned from the Lord God of Israel who had appeared to him twice. <laughs> I like that it's just, and he appeared to him twice. I think that's interesting. Like he's got it because he actually visited Solomon in person. I don't think any of us have like had conversations with God, but Solomon had, which goes to tell you that a conversation with God is not one that will change your heart on its own. He doesn't force people to follow him even people he's directly talked to. Then he had a commandment, verse 10, and had commanded him concerning this thing, that he should not go after other gods. But he did not keep what the Lord had commanded. God himself told Solomon not to do it, yet Solomon still did it. This is terrifying and should be to any believer that we can have actual real interactions with God and have our hearts still go astray. So we decide, where's my heart? What am I living for? What do I want to do? So... A clear rejection of Solomon's decisions. None of this is an argument for doing these things. It's an argument to not do these things. The wisest, richest man that ever lived could not evade sin. He didn't have the ability to do it on his own strength. So who are we to think that we can beat sin on our own without the help of Jesus Christ? That's foolish thinking. We don't have the money. We don't have the wisdom. We don't, frankly, we're not as smart as Solomon was. He had intelligence going with him, too. All these gifts. Yet sin still kicked his butt. Therefore, the Lord said to Solomon, Because you've done this and you've not kept my covenant and my statutes, which I've commanded you, I will surely tailor the kingdom away from you and give it to your servant. Nevertheless, I will not do it in your days for the sake of your father David. I will tear it out of your hand of your son. However, I will not tear away the whole kingdom. I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. So this is key. Why didn't anything happen to Solomon? Something did happen to Solomon. God decided Solomon would not keep the whole kingdom of Israel. Takes it away. It says twice in here that for the sake of your father David, this is because he made a promise to David about his son taking the throne of the kingdom. So God's going to keep that promise so it's not that Solomon doesn't have to pay or be responsible for these decisions. It is the fact that God's going to be faithful to his promise that he made to David about Solomon. So does something happen to Solomon? Yes, he's being judged by God, but it's like on a delay order. So authority in this case comes with responsibility. This is why like people get paid more when they're managers. Solomon had taken on responsibility, so he's accountable to his decisions when he does that. People want the authority but they don't always want the responsibility. And it's a, it's one of those things. Solomon, I think, was happy to have the authority, but I'm sure that he's not happy with the fact that God came and said this to him. Seven letters to pastors in the Bible, all of them have to do with keeping the church peaceful and keeping koinonia in the church so people can come there for rest. Like you can read Timothy, Titus, read the pastoral letters. The idea of the shepherd or the person responsible is that you keep the peace. So when you got... Chemosh worship in your country and you're doing nothing about it, Solomon's failed in his responsibilities. This was his business to keep that going. Solomon should have been diligent to keep God's people free from these kinds of sins. Should have been active in it. So God spares him some of that for the sake of David um, and he moves on. That's a great principle. That means that if God loves somebody, he cannot exert the punishment on even a sinner if he chooses not to. This is fascinating, so catch me on this. So the idea that God approved and loved Jesus means that God can then not choose to punish people as for the sake of somebody else. So there's a principle here that's a fascinating idea, I think at least, we'll talk about it later. If Jesus is greater than David, then the forgiveness that God can offer from that could theoretically be much greater than that. God could forgive anything he wants, if he wants to. So God's faithfulness is proven in this situation, which creates an evidential situation that God can choose to hold back on punishment. Frankly, you've got a lot of sinners walking the earth right now that are due a punishment that's not being exerted on them as we speak. So God's waiting. Why is he waiting? Well, for the sake that everyone should come to the kingdom of God. So for the the hope of people coming towards the kingdom, God waylays his judgment on people. And so he's doing that here for one of the first times, really. And we see this idea that salvation then can be waited on for hopes that maybe Solomon would repent. Because Solomon could repent, and we, we see evidence of that, but not in this book. Likewise, the kingdom then is offered And the rewards that are given are based on the faithful actions that come forward. So based on the faithful actions of Jesus, based on his death and sacrifice on the cross, based on the fact that God approved that sacrifice and accepted it, we can then have those promises that are set out for us. He made promises through Jesus Christ that we can be the beneficiaries of. Luke 6.35 Love your enemies, do good, and lend, hoping for nothing in return, and your reward will be great and you will be the sons of the Most High. So in the sense that we try to obey and follow Jesus and become obedient to Jesus, we can then be the beneficiary of God's mercy or lay of his grace, based on how God chooses to do it. He's going to give one tribe to, to Solomon, and there's going to be 10 tribes that take off. Now, if you're a good math person, you realize that's the number 11. So where's tribe number 12 in that picture? Tribe number 12 is Judah, because Solomon would be the head of the tribe of Judah, and that's not necessarily a tribe that's given to him. It's one he's already the head tribe of it. So Judah and Benjamin become the southern kingdom. The other ten tribes become the northern kingdom. Another aspect of this rest that God's giving to Solomon, this patience that he's having, Uh, is that enemies are going to pop up that maybe wouldn't have popped up if he didn't go into sin, or at least that's the implication of the chapter. Now, the Lord raised up an adversary against Solomon, Hadad the Edomite, and he was a descendant of the king of Edom. For it happened when David was in Edom, and Joab the commander of the army had gone up to bury the slain after he'd killed every male in Edom. So the seeds of this consequence for Solomon are put into place years before Solomon's ever born. And I think that's important to know that God's orchestrating history in a very powerful way. Verse 16, because for six months, Joab remained there with all Israel until he had cut down every male in Edom. Nothing commanded Joab to do that. So back when we were studying this, the killing every male in the country, that's something that they were supposed to just drive them out. But this seems like an extreme situation. So what that did, verse 17, Hadad fled to Egypt he and a certain Edomites of his father's servants with him, Hadad was still a little child, so he escapes this. And then they arose from Midian and came to Paran, and they took men with them from Paran and came to Egypt, to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who gave him a house and appointed food for him and gave him land. So as Joab and David carry out this kind of crushing punishment on the Edomites, one of them gets away. And from this passage, it's almost like God allowed that to happen. And so he gets housing. In the ancient world, when a group of people came into your country, there were so few people on the planet at this time, Egypt had land to spare. And we saw this with Joseph. Remember, Joseph came with his household, and Pharaoh said, well, you can have this land over here, just work it. And from the leader's perspective in the ancient world, that's just more tax money coming in. So having a group of competent people walk into your country with leadership and organization great you can work over here i'll take some of your crops and from pharaoh's perspective this is a really good deal and so he has workers he has a crew he does this notice here that the that egypt again is the shelterer of the enemy this is egypt has been this thing where they weren't supposed to go back to egypt egypt was an image of the world and it has been so but the world grooms hadad to be an enemy of israel So he's raised there. He grows into adulthood there. And now, um, of course, he becomes an enemy, an adversary. Literally, in the Hebrew, the word Satan, an adversary, 1 Kings 5-4. Solomon could say that there was no adversary back in 1 Kings 5-4. He can't say that there's not an adversary at the end of his life. Adversaries pop up. Verse 19, Hadad found great favor in the sight of Pharaoh so that he gave him his wife, the sister of his own wife, that is, Queen Topanes. So he actually marries into the family. And then the sister of Tapanes bore him Genubath, his son. And Tapanes weaned in Pharaoh's house. And Ganubath was in Pharaoh's household among the sons of Pharaoh. So when Hadad heard in Egypt that David rested with his fathers, that Joab, the commander of the army, was dead, Hadad said to Pharaoh, let me depart that I might go to my own country. Hadad waits until the people that enforced God's law were gone. He waited for compromise. He waited for Solomon. So there's this lingering vendetta This frankly would make great historical fiction. He's just seething, waiting for his chance to go back and get back at the Israelites, but he waits for the strongman to leave. If you want to take a strongman's house, you got to take out the strongman. So that image that he's just waiting for David to be gone, and when David's gone, and Joab, by the way, let's not forget him, you don't mess with those two. They are no-nonsense people. But Solomon, he'll entertain other kinds of people. So Pharaoh said to him, what have you lacked with me that suddenly you seek to go to your own country? So he answered nothing, but do let me go away. You've been awesome, Pharaoh. It's been great staying with you, but I got a mission and that is to hurt the people of God. So that Edomite threat could have been waylaid. Maybe if Solomon was faithful, or at least if Solomon had a line that you didn't cross, people wouldn't try to cross it. So Solomon would have been on his guard. He was supposed to guard his hope, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking who may be devoured. If your faith is guarded, you put off half the trials the enemy has to throw at you. If you're faithful in the things you're doing, many of the battles that other Christians are fighting, you'll just find you're not fighting them because you're on guard. You've got your guard up. Solomon lets his guard down, and there's people waiting to pounce when that happens, and these people have just been kept in the wings through all of David and, and Joab's time. I would also like to think, if we don't fill our life with Christ, with faithfulness, there are diligently things waiting out there for us to get our hearts, or at least to harass us. Verse 23, God raised up another adversary against him, Rezon the son of Eliada who had fled from his lord, had Hadadizar, the king of Zobah, and he gathered men to him and became captain over a band of raiders. This kind of sounds like David's history, right? Kind of outskirted, kind of on his own, little band of raiders pops up. When David killed those of Zobah, and they went to Damascus and dwelt there, and they reigned in Damascus. They actually took over a little of land. When he was an adversary of Israel all the days of Solomon, besides the trouble that Hadad caused, and he abhorred Israel, and he reigned over Syria. So, You've got um, Hadad coming from the south, raiding towns, villages causing problems. You've got Rezan coming from the north. Literally, this is the, the same parts of the world that Israel struggle with today. They have Hamas in the, lo- the north and they have the PLO in the south. Continually an ongoing harassment of Israel. Today they throw little rockets over on a daily basis. Um, but those raiders of the north and south, kind of annoying populations of people. They're not a threat to the country, but they cause death and destruction whenever they can. So two enemies coming at Solomon's kingdom. He's got a third one from the inside, verse 26. Solomon's servant Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. This kind of, I think the first two are like annoyances from the outside are a little easier to put off. But when you got that kind of betrayal from the inside, that's a lot harder to deal with. It causes a lot more damage. Jeroboam the son of Nebat, an Ephraimite from Zerida, whose mother's name was Zeruah, a widow who rebelled against the king. Uh, so a couple clues here. First, this is an Ephraimite. We know Ephraim has had problems with Judah. There's been a rivalry there for a long time. And this is what it caused him to rebel against the king. Uh, so we get a story on this one. I like that. Um, this is what eventually splits the nation. This is important because as we Move through kings, we're going to see that the nation splits in the next generation. So as soon as Solomon dies, there's a a break, and this is where the break starts. Um, Frankly, it started with Solomon not tending to the things of God. And then the end result is we see this split. The Ephraimites then, all the way back to Judah, are persistent complainers. They're a prominent wealthy tribe. They've got great territory. The tabernacle actually was in Ephraim at Shiloh before David of Judah moved it to Jerusalem to come into Judah territory. They used to be the place everybody would go on a pilgrimage, and now they're not. And the reason they're not is because of Judah and King David. So there's a a deep-seated kind of bitterness there. Solomon had built the the millow, and this is the second time they mentioned the millow, and they repaired the damages of the city of David for his father. Um, It's interesting that... um, that Solomon had built the millo and repaired the damages. We saw in the list of projects this thing called the millow. And everything else, like the walls of Jerusalem, are pretty easy to figure out. The temple, we know what that is. The millow is one of those weird terms, it means kind of stronghold or fortress or buttress or some kind of foundation. So we know the millo was some kind of retaining wall that was there. And on this verse, it attaches it to the city of David. That's interesting. Today in Israel, in the Kidron Valley, we see stones that have been dissembled and dropped in the Kidron that were massive, that would have been some sort of supporting structure that extended the city of David to be a bigger platform on that hill. So as Jerusalem comes into kind of a V, the Millo was perhaps something that extended the end of that V to be a bigger fortress at the end. And there's archaeologists today that argue that the Milo could have been the foundation for a temple mount that's not on the current traditional site of the temple. So that's why they're looking at those rocks really carefully right now. And they found a coin under one of them, Uh, but we won't get into that. It's not in my notes. Verse 28, the man Jeroboam was a mighty man of valor. Well, that's a good thing. And Solomon, seeing that the young man was industrious, made him an officer over all the labor force of the house of Joseph. So being a mighty man of valor, as we've studied so far in Kings and Samuel, that's a good distinction. To be that kind of a person, not just a valorous person, but a mighty man of valor. So he's both honorable and he's capable. And in this thing, they add industrious too. So this is quite a guy. So it could be that Jeroboam didn't like, remember Solomon started using forced labor? He would have been over that forced labor. So it could be that Jeremiah saw that as a sin against God and didn't want to have much to do with it, but at least he's an Ephraimite, that isn't happy with how a Judah king is ruling and how he's doing things. So God meets him and actually shows up. So it happened at that time when Jeroboam went out of Jerusalem that the prophet Ahijah, the Shilonite, Shilonite's a town in Ephraim, so Jeroboam and, and Ahijah would have likely known each other because they're from the same tribe, same area of the world. So it's it's a key here that the prophet Ahijah is actually a Shilonite, met him on the way, and he clothed himself with a new garment. And the two were alone in the field. Then Ahijah took hold of the new garment that was over him, and he tore it into 12 pieces. So you get the imagery, right? You got a new nation called Israel, and there's a new garment on the prophet, and then the nation's going to get torn into pieces because there's 12 tribes. So that's the imagery that's going on here. Uh, Frankly, uh, you take a new garment and tear it up, that's kind of a a, a very visceral image. Verse 31, He said to Jeroboam, Take for yourself 10 pieces. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, behold, I will tear the kingdom out of the hand of Solomon and I will give 10 tribes to you. But he shall have one tribe for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, the city which I have chosen out of all the 12 tribes of Israel. Solomon's gonna get Jerusalem and Judah plus one tribe. So it's assumed that Judah stays with Judah's family. What's the other tribe? In my head, I'm thinking like, Maybe even they wrote the names of the tribes because it'll say all that you desire. So it might even be that Jeroboam got to pick which tribes. And he leaves Benjamin with Judah because it's kind of inside of Judah, and he takes the rest. But I don't know. It doesn't say the names are on the pieces, but there's these pieces, and he says, pick your pieces, Um, and and he gets to take one. This is similar to Saul's calling and David's calling in that God met them alone where the prophet kind of comes up to him when they're on their own. That was the same way that God first met with Saul and the same way that he first kind of encountered David, is that he had a, Solomon, or a, a prophet come out and personally tell them these things. Uh, and then later it becomes public. So Jeroboam knows he's going to be a leader of these tribes before it actually happens. And so that when it happens, he should have every chance to trust that God did it because he was told well before that it would happen. So verse 33 finishes the story because they've forsaken me and worshipped Ashtoreth the goddess of the Sidonians Chemosh the god of the Moabites Milcom the god of Ammon and have not walked in my ways to do what's right in my eyes and keep my statutes my judgments as it did as as did his father David so this is almost like a refrain it's funny that what god says to solomon is almost identical to what he says to solomon's enemy at least god's consistent and at least he's, he's truthful in what he says. However, I will not take the whole kingdom out of his hand because I've made him ruler of all the days of his life for the sake of my servant David, whom I chose because he kept my commandments and my statutes. I love that Solomon is given mercy because of his dad. This is great. I love that God can do that when he chooses to. In fact, I rely on the fact that God will show me mercy because I've chosen to follow Jesus and Jesus advocates for me. So this principle of, of, of some sort of connection and how God extends mercy, essentially God's going to do as God pleases. Verse 35, I will take the kingdom out of his son's hand and give it to you, ten tribes. And to his son I will give one tribe, that my servant David may always have a lamp before me in Jerusalem, the city which I've chosen for myself to put my name there. So I will take you and you shall reign over all your heart desires and you shall be king over Israel. So Israel gets the name of the ten tribes. Judah gets the name of the southern kingdom. So when we talk about Israel, the northern kingdom, sometimes the northern kingdom is even called Ephraim for this reason. The southern kingdoms always called Judah from when this split happens. Remember there's a plan for Messiah to show up. Like that's been a theme in the Old Testament. I love verse 36 as it really says this idea of there's a reason he can't totally take things away from Solomon and that's because he's got a plan of salvation that's going to come through David's line. So to keep that promise, he's not going to fully take it away. So sometimes God's doing things or working things out for good, even in the cases of this kind of discipline. And that idea that there would be a lamp before me in Jerusalem, this city Jerusalem is the place that he's chosen for himself. That's interesting. He doesn't say he's chosen it for a Messiah. He says, I have chosen for myself to put my name there. So it's almost like I'm going to show up, and this is where I care to show up, and it needs to be the people of God that are in this place for a certain amount of time. So there's a plan that's in place, and God's going to keep that plan in place despite what the enemy wants to do. This idea of all your heart's desires, it assumes then that Jeroboam had desires. When he says that. So Jeroboam had something in his heart that wasn't respecting Solomon's reign. It says he's a man of valor. We can assume, if we're just going through the Bible here, that he was given every chance to be a godly king. It turns out he's not, or he won't go that right. But at least when God finds him, he's a person that has a pure heart and has the right reasons for not liking what Solomon's doing. So he gives him every chance. The chance looked really similar to what Saul had, what David had, what Solomon had. Um, and he says, I'll bless you if you follow me, and I won't bless you if you don't. But he's going to rip the kingdom apart. Verse 38, then it shall be if you heed all that I command you, walk in my ways, do what is right in my sight, to keep my statutes and my commandments as my servant David did, then I will be with you and build for you an enduring house. He doesn't say I'm going to give you Messiah or, or that I'm going to be myself with you. He says you'll have an enduring house as I built for David, and I will give Israel to you. And I will afflict the descendants of David because of this, but not forever. There's going to be a point where God's not going to because he's got a plan. Very similar. Like at this point in Kings, we should almost recognize verse 38. Follow, Do it my way and you'll be blessed. Do it some other way and you won't be. Verse 40, Solomon therefore sought to kill Jeroboam. <laughs> a lot like Saul tried to kill David when he found out about the blessing. But Jeroboam arose and fled to Egypt to Shishak, king of Egypt, and was in Egypt until the death of Solomon. So Jeroboam takes off also and gets sheltered and housed in Egypt. They love housing people that are not on good terms with Israel, don't they? Uh, the divided kingdom now is going to be his, it's going to be the history of Israel for hundreds of years from here forward. So between the two, we'll track both of them. We'll put our focus on Judah because that's the, where the promise is. And Kings and Chronicles acts really similar. They put One puts more focus on both nations, and one puts that focus uh, more on Judah. Um, the idea that Solomon would then try to kill people, like the progression that we had with Solomon and his sin, now we're, we've come all the way to the point where Solomon's acting like Saul. He's actually trying to kill a good, mighty, valorous man. At least David had ulterior motives. Solomon's just selfish. And this sin that keeps coming up is this idea of the compromise eventually leads to the point where now Solomon's a murderer. Envy, hate, strife, and murder fill this guy's heart. He's not happy, and he's not content, and he's not trusting in the law of God. And that's Solomon's great, deep failing. Even the judgment and wisdom of Solomon doesn't save him from a sick heart progressively pulled away from God. Shishak, the king of Egypt, just a quick historical note on that. Uh, Pharaohs always ruled in Egypt. So here, Shishak's called a king. And initially, that should raise like a, wait, what happened there? Why is this not Shishak, the pharaoh of Egypt? And the reason for that is that pharaohs, the government of Egypt had dissembled at this point in history, and they started having kings instead of pharaohs. Um, So in 1 Kings 14, We're going to see Shishak actually works with Jeroboam, invades Israel, and they're going to steal all the gold from those shields that Solomon made. They're all going to go back to Egypt. Which means a lot of that gold was stuff they took out of Egypt that had been repurposed and set up. And Egypt's going to get everything back that God had given to the Israelites. In other words, things will be made even. Raiders of the Lost Ark, the movie references Shishak because it's at that time when Shishak invades that he takes all the gold products and the, the articles of the temple with him. Um, again Raiders of the Lost Ark is not the Bible, but it's a popular theory that this is when the Ark of the Covenant was stolen and it was taken back to Egypt. That's why when in Raiders Last Ark they're digging holes in Egypt. They're not digging holes in, in Israel. Um, Second Chronicles thirty five mentions that Josiah had it returned to the house, um, but there's no mention of the Ark leaving Israel anywhere in the Bible. So how did then Josiah return it to the house when there's no mention of it ever leaving the house? So the only mention you have is this thing where Shishak is the one that takes all the gold implements of the temple and hauls them out. The New Testament, when it references the Ark, almost always references Noah's Ark. So by the time we hit the New Testament or the first century... Um, There's really no more mention of the Ark after this, after this time with Shishak. Um, The only other mention that's made is when you see the Ark as the actual Ark in the heavenly heavens, when you get to the book of Revelation. Then the temple of God was opened in heaven, and the Ark of his covenant was seen in his temple, and there were lightings, noises, thunderings, and an earthquake and a great hail. So at the end of days, the Ark reappears. So right now we have a, a, an ark then that biblically kind of gets lost. Rehoboam partnering with Shishak is part of how that ark becomes lost in biblical history. Um, Roman historian Josephus record, records this army that comes as a 400,000 soldier army. So all these references of Shishak kind of partnering and helping with these rebellions of Egypt creates a pretty massive army. And then you get to verse 41, and we see Solomon pass away. Now the rest of the Acts of Solomon and all that he did and his wisdom, are they not written in the book of the Acts of Solomon? I don't know because I don't have the book of the Acts of Solomon. This is in the heavenly libraries, which we will be raiding when we get there. And we can find out all about it, but God didn't put that book in the Bible because it's not what we need to hear. So there are histories that we don't have and that are referenced here. Uh, the period that Solomon reigned in Jerusalem over all of Israel was 40 years. I, I, they could put the word only in there. That means that Solomon only lived to 60. He, didn't, he wasn't really that old when he died. Didn't God promise him old life? The promise that God made for old life for Solomon was in the condition that he obeyed God's principles. So what we just saw in the last two chapters is why he didn't have old life. So he, d- he didn't live to a ripe old age. He only lived to 60 Um, You young folks are like, that is a ripe old age. No, it's not. We should live longer than 60. Uh, An old man, Solomon, pens uh, in Ecclesiastes. I don't want to leave on this note. Uh, Then Solomon rested with his father. Or at that period, Solomon reigned in Jerusalem over Israel for 40 years. Then Solomon rested with his fathers. That's a way to say he died. And was buried in the city of David, his father. And Rehoboam, his son, reigned in his place. Transition of power. Solomon's dead. Really not even, like you saw David die, it took us three chapters to kill off David, right? Because there were poems and songs and prayers and a celebration of a life well lived. Solomon gets an inglorious ending to his history. He died. And his kingdom went to his son, Rehoboam. So Jeroboam and Rehoboam are going to face off as we come back. But I want to end on this note. Um, What King shows us is is a guy that died in sin worshiping idols. I'm so blessed that, because I like Solomon, I, I, I think Solomon's got a lot of cool things, like how God blesses people and how, we, how he builds, he does work for the king. His prayer was beautiful. Like as a young man, he's a guy we should emulate. It, you can get the impression from kings that Solomon just died in sin, but when you read the book of Ecclesiastes, you not only hear a giant confession that his life was wasted and he did it the wrong way, but you also see a heart that truly loves God. I just want to read just real quickly from the end of Ecclesiastes, verse chapter 12, verse 13. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's all. For God will bring every work into judgment, including your Chemosh temples, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. It's not clear from kings if he is repentant or regretful of all these sins. It is crystal clear in Ecclesiastes that he was repentant And wished he had done his life differently. And I think that's a a thing that we need to recognize. That God looks inside the heart. Even after a lifetime of all these things. And he looks for a heart that will return to him. So 2 Samuel 7 has a promise from God to David about Solomon. God says to David, if he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and the stripes of the children of men. Chapter 11 shows that God did that. He was punished but my mercy shall not depart away from him. So we have both God's promise, and I think that's because God knew that Solomon's heart would come back to him in the end. And, I'm, and that's part of why I think Ecclesiastes is in the Bible. It gives us hope, even though we have a dark history, we can still have hope that the inner workings of Solomon were repentant at the end of his life, as it says in Ecclesiastes. I think privately, he was brought home to be with his maker. When we get to heaven, we'll be able to hang out and talk with Solomon. And God spent his attentions on Solomon because he knew in the end Solomon would give us a great example of a wasted life, right? And he spent his attentions on Solomon because he knew Solomon's heart would return to him in the end. When we have sinners in our life, people that we know that are living in sin, don't give up on them. Not until the day they die, because we don't know the inner workings of the heart. And we don't know what they're going through or what they're thinking or how they're thinking it. So we constantly love and show the grace of God to those people and the truth of God through his word to those people. Because we can trust that God can take somebody even at the even at the side of the cross. And offer them heaven in the end when their hearts change or turn back. That said, we say farewell to Solomon, the great builder of the temple, the uniter of Israel, and the builder of empires. And he passes away, and we will come back and start going through all the rest of the kings next week. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for Solomon. Uh, Lord, we have and want nothing to do with the idols that this world creates. We want nothing to do with the false gods, Lord. We want the true God that gives the living water. Lord, we thank you for Solomon's bad example because we can learn as much from a bad example as we can from a good one. Uh, So, Lord, we know that um, your mercy endures through generations. Lord, your mercy is extended to us because of your son, Jesus Christ. And we thank you so much for that. Uh, You're a marvelous God to the depths that we can't even understand. You have woven through history uh, the seeds of our discipline, but also the seeds of our mercy. So, Lord, we pray that we can be obedient to you, that each person in this room can offer their lives to you as a living sacrifice. We can give to you what we have, Lord, because we know that you are faithful and just to forgive. Uh, we know that you know our hearts every most secret, innermost part. We know that you can read us inside and out. So we hide nothing from you, Lord. We put it all on the altar and we give it to is mm-hmm.